Welcome to the Philosophy Cast, where we take complicated philosophical topics and break them down for everyone to understand so that you, the listener, can gain new perspectives on the world. I'm your host, Alexander Totai, and today's episode will be about what I'm actually using to make this episode. No, it's not about microphones, computers, or an internet connection. It's about what I use to actually discuss philosophy on this show. Language. To some, language seems pretty basic. It's just what we use to communicate with people on a daily basis. To others, like linguists or polyglots, language is a hobby or a lifestyle. But no matter how you look at language, you have to admit that there's more to it than just words, vocabulary, grammar, pronunciation, and writing systems. We're constantly choosing our words very carefully so that they communicate the message we want to communicate. And oftentimes, they're chosen to elicit a specific emotion in the listener or reader. And that shows us that our ability to use language is pretty complex and philosophically revealing. However, even despite this incredible ability we as humans have to memorize thousands of words and sentence structures, we still fairly regularly run into problems with communication. Have you ever struggled to find the words to describe something and feeling frustrated that you couldn't communicate what should be an easy message to get across? about lacking the vocabulary to tell someone how you feel. These are challenges that come up in day-to-day life, and they do result in really big problems. Since the mid-1970s, for example, it's estimated that miscommunication has caused the death of more than 2,000 people in airplane-related accidents. So what is the solution for when language limits us and what we need to communicate? Well, for some, the answer is to just make another language. That's what today's episode is about. Why do some people make constructed languages, or conlangs as they're often called? What can be learned by philosophically analyzing the various reasons that people create and have created languages for? If we were to tackle the problem we just described, we'd be looking at a conlang like Ithquil. Ithquil is a conlang created by John Cajada, which aims to avoid any ambiguity possible. How does it do this? By including a lot of options when it comes to constructing sentences. You can modify any given root in the language with 15 different layers of information to make your intention clearer, which is not even to mention the fact that these layers are in and of themselves very complex, with seven different tones that correspond to things like part of speech and whether or not an action was successful or not, as well as a whopping 96 grammatical cases so that your nouns can be described with maximum clarity using a minimal amount of words. Now, obviously... Nobody speaks Ithquil. There are conlangs that people actually speak to each other in, but Ithquil is certainly not one of them. It's an experimental language which aims at expressing things more deeply while being as brief as possible. For example, using just two words in Ithquil, it is possible to say, On the contrary, I think it may turn out that this rugged mountain range trails off at some point. Using just one, you can say, I find you hard to believe, after allegedly trying to go back to repeatedly inspiring fear, using ragtag groups of suspicious-looking clowns, despite resistance. Ithquil is one possible look at what a maximally efficient language would look like. And unsurprisingly, humans being highly imperfect, basically cannot learn to speak it. Now, somebody dedicating this much time to create an entire language from scratch seems a little strange to us. But creating languages and improving the efficiency of communication were actually very popular amongst philosophers in particular. And unlike Ithquil, some of these languages did aspire to catch on enough to get people speaking them. Let's look at the German philosopher Gottlob Frege, 
As a pioneer of mathematics and especially logic, it's not surprising that Frege's attempt at a constructed language was highly logical. The problem that Frege saw with language, much like the problem Quijada tried to provide a hypothetical solution for, is that it's too ambiguous. The example that Frege offers is this, the problem of the morning star and the evening star. For centuries, astronomers referred to the morning star and evening star only to discover that they were actually the same astronomical body. So, following the principle of identity, these names should be interchangeable. So, we should be able to say that the morning star is the morning star, as well as that the evening star is the morning star. But then there's a problem with that. We know that the morning star and evening star are the same thing, but ancient Greek astronomers thought of them as different entities. Because of this, Frege thinks that not only the meaning of words matter, but also what he terms as sense, the way objects are being described. Morning star and evening star refer to the same thing, but the way they refer to it is distinct, and that distinction can drastically change what you're trying to say, depending on whether or not you're an ancient Greek astronomer. There's a lot of ambiguity here, and so Frege made a distinction between natural language and ideal language. Let's look at another example. In natural language, the three sentences, Socrates is wise, Socrates is a Greek, and Socrates is real, seem to have the same sentence structure in natural language. But in ideal language, which evaluates sentence structure based on logic, the difference in the statements are made clear in the language itself. The sentence, Socrates is wise, is the only one which actually ascribes anything to Socrates, that being that he's wise. The sentence, Socrates is a Greek, says that Socrates is a member of the Greek group. And finally, the sentence, Socrates is real, just says that there is a thing that is Socrates. Frege's full system of notation was published in his Begwashrift, or concept script, in which he laid out his language of thought. The work's goal was to quote-unquote break the power of the word over the human mind through eliminating ambiguity and confusion. And it somewhat worked. Frege's system is no longer directly used, mostly because it was too difficult to print, but its way of thinking about philosophical statements and arguments set the table for further modifications to come. With Frege's classification system, I think we can start to narrow in on a more specific type of constructed language, meaning that we found at least one reason why people create constructed languages, to correct the flaws of natural languages. There isn't a natural language on the planet without some sort of challenge to it. Consider the fact that all natural languages have at least some irregularities, whether it's grammar, pronunciation, or spelling, Every language breaks its own rules at one point or another. This is due to the fact that, well, languages don't exist in a vacuum. Languages are warped and influenced by technology, culture, politics, and of course, other languages. This means that the way we speak is constantly changing, not dictated by some singular principle decided from the outset. It's no wonder that many people create languages with a singular principle in mind. Such a thing never really happens in our world. So let's say that you did want to create a language that was completely logical. Well, computer languages would be the obvious answer. And so James Cook Brown decided to create Loglin, a constructed language made to avoid, you guessed it, ambiguity. But Loglin was different from Lithquill in that it was doing an experiment. Loglin wanted to test the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which more or less stated that the language you grew up speaking influences how you think. It especially applies to languages with a different word order. Subjects, objects, and verbs are placed at different points in the sentence depending on the language being used. 
The question Logland was created to answer was, what would happen to people if we had them learn a language unlike any other? Well, we'll be focusing on the spiritual successor to Logland, Lojban, because it's the modification that ended up being the most effective. And Lojban, every word has one meaning, and the grammar is designed to relate words in only one way. It sounds a lot like Ithquil, and indeed it is in a lot of ways. The philosophical conception of language that seems to align with Lojban's goals is that of Ludwig Wittgenstein's, as presented in the Tractatus. Once, Wittgenstein read about a court case in Paris about a car accident, in which a model, complete with cars, houses, streets, and people, represented the situation being discussed. In this scenario, the objects were representations of a real, tangible thing, that thing being the car accident. Wittgenstein thought that the words used in the court case were doing the same thing. The words are models of the things they are discussing. In other words, our language is a reflection of actual concepts. If I say, the dog eats dog food, then I'm painting a picture of a real dog really eating real dog food. We know that there is a dog when there is an animal that is classified as such. That animal is classified as such when it has the physical characteristics of a dog. And it has those characteristics when there's an animal with the body parts of a dog arranged in the right shape. They're arranged in the right shape when all the body parts are there, and they're all there when the chemical compounds that make up the body parts are all arranged in this very specific way. And the compounds are just a bunch of molecules, which are just a bunch of atoms, which all contain a bunch of protons, electrons, and neutrons, and so on and so forth. As you can see, there's kind of a never-ending spiral here. Wittgenstein said that we finally stop breaking these terms down when science says to stop. The ancient Greek conception of an atom, something that cannot be divided any further, is what we're looking for. Wittgenstein termed these as simple concepts, and once we find them, we can communicate with absolute clarity. There won't be any such thing as preciseness, because science will be able to fully describe the relationships between the absolute smallest parts of any given bit of information. In other words, the picture created when we use language to describe reality will no longer be a reflection or model of what we're trying to describe, but a perfect copy of what we're talking about. This is sort of what Lojban is, since Lojban has only one meaning for one word and one interpretation of a grammatical structure, we can be as vague and zoomed out, or specific and granular as we want to be when we describe the relationships between objects. But alas, it's not spoken by anyone in their day-to-day interactions because we are illogical and incorporate ambiguity into the way we speak. Okay, so some people create languages as a sort of test to see how much we can perfect certain aspects of communication present within the words and grammar themselves. But there's more types of conlangs out there. Enter Esperanto, one of the most well-known conlangs to date. Esperanto is a little bit like our previously mentioned conlangs, and that is trying to perfect something that is highly imperfect in natural languages. But instead of trying to make very logical or dense grammar, Esperanto is far more ambitious, and as we'll soon see, idealistic. It tries to improve communication by bridging the language barriers present between the world's thousands of languages and cultures. Gigi Zamenhof was a Polish linguist who really didn't like to see his home divided along the lines of German, Russian, Polish, and Hebrew, as well as the other linguistic barriers that plagued his country. He felt it was his duty to end this problem, imagining a paradise where everybody spoke not only their native language, but also Esperanto. 
anybody could communicate with anyone else, world peace must be soon to follow. Zamenhof tried to achieve this goal by deliberately designing Esperanto to be easy to learn. Every word is created by roots, which have pieces attached to them, which indicate if it's an adjective, verb, as well as pieces that indicate if something is a command, as the opposite of the root you're using, and so on and so forth. Esperanto never took off for a few reasons. One was that nationalism was rising in Europe at the time, especially in Nazi Germany. One was the dominance of English over most of the world. And another was the simple fact that getting everyone to speak one language, whose similarities were mostly to only Romance and Germanic languages, was a bit idealistic. Now, Zamenhof might have been the most well-known person to create a language designed for the goal of being Earth's lingua franca, but he wasn't actually the first. In the 1880s, Johann Martin Schleier, a Roman Catholic priest in Baden, Germany, set out to create an international language. His language would be called Volapük, and it was actually quite successful. There were three conferences held about the Conlang, the last of which was held entirely in Volapük. The language ultimately failed because of the creator's unwillingness for reform, which resulted in lots of different Volapük groups, which broke off from the main language and inevitably led to the fracturing of the Conlang and its downfall. It seems like the sheer idealism of these conlangs, as well as world conflicts, were a big part of why we don't all speak them today. But I think that there is one more reason that these languages failed, one with far more philosophical implications. Charles E. Sprock, the chief Volapukian in the United States, as well as the author of Handbook of Volapuk, admitted in the Evening Times of Washington, D.C. newspaper that Volapuk was, regrettably, quite a failure. What did Sprague point to as the reason for the Conlang's demise? Well, in his own words, Sprague says that the failure was due to the fact that the percentage of those who really need to know several languages besides their own is not yet sufficiently large enough to ensure the success of a universal language. Now, I think we can be sure that at least part of what Sprague is referring to is the fact that learning a foreign language takes quite a lot of effort, and not everybody really has a need in their lives to learn another language. I mean, to a lot of people, If you live in an area where only one language is spoken, and you are perfectly content with the entertainment, information, and content available in that language, why bother learning another one? I think this phenomenon is at least partially responsible for the stereotype that people from the United States aren't terribly skilled with foreign languages, because while the rest of the world is spending hours and hours learning English, people in Anglophone countries, specifically the US, where language barriers are significantly less of a problem like they are in Europe and Asia, Americans are raised with the ability to communicate with almost anyone from anywhere in their native tongue because basically everybody needs to learn it. Yes, part of the reason for the failure of these languages is that it's a lot of effort to learn another one. Even though Esperanto takes a fraction of the time and effort to learn than most other European languages, many people would probably rather learn something more useful for them in their lives, which, more often than not, will be a natural language spoken by real people that they actually know. But I think there is more than mere utility to consider here. I mentioned earlier that Nazi Germany disapproved of Esperanto. That was because the regime thought of the language as a globalist scheme to put multiculturalism into place. Now, this is obviously a very extreme way of thinking about Esperanto, but I think that the general idea of this particular objection to a global language was definitely a big factor in its failure to accomplish its goal. Languages are tied to identity, and many people, extremist or not, feel that an attempt to get everyone to speak the same language is a surefire way to destroy their unique linguistic identity 
and, by extension, a part of themselves or their nation. The idea of what the self actually is has had no shortage of philosophical debate over the centuries. The question of what you are is something still discussed to this day. However, I think one interpretation of the what makes you you question that I think is particularly applicable in this context is Derek Parfit's survival theory. Parfit claims that our lives are just a collection of links to one another that, together, make up any given person's identity. As life goes on and you make new, memorable experiences, new links get made. But old memories that are tossed out represent a link that's broken. Part of claims that as time passes, the person you are is changed by it. However, despite all this cognitive chaos, there are links and memories that survive the process of ditching old links, or memories, and making new ones. The most relevant parts of a person are the links that never break. The memories and attributes that have stayed constant for decades will stay constant for the decades to come are the most important aspects of your identity. And what's one link to the past and to the future that will likely never break? Your native language. Ever since you could speak, you did it in a specific language, which will never cease to be a part of you. Maybe you could lose some of your ability to speak it over time by not utilizing it, but it will never be gone. Your native language is a slot which can only be occupied by a handful of different ways of communicating. No matter how good your native language is now, that is a mark on your identity that will never go away. To go even further, we could consider this phenomenon outside of the individual person. Language not only links your past self to your present self, but also to other people, in particular, your nation. A nation can consist of many different types of people, but they're all more or less united by their language. It's an even better criteria for defining a people group than something like race even. If you move to a country, you might not be able to transform into the major ethnicity of the place, but after enough immersion and practice, you can learn to speak the native language and therefore form a link with the people of the country. When we think about it like this, it actually makes a lot of sense that some people are wary of learning universal language. A language is one of the biggest parts of who we are and what our communities are. To replace this would mean to destroy who we are and our links to the people around us. And even though people like Zamenhof wanted to maintain the uniqueness of the world's various languages, it still arouses suspicion from many people. Actually, part of survival theory also explains why language conservation is such a big deal. If a language dies out in a particular country or part of a country, a massive link between people groups is broken, striking a large blow to a community's identity. When it comes to the idea of a universal second language like Esperanto, Think about the present situation of many former Soviet territories. Almost all people in these areas speak Russian, but in no insignificant number of them, the native language of the place is in danger, which has sparked efforts from many of their leaders to not only promote the country's native language, but also to embark on a process of de-Russification. Their people are linked to the Russian people, but will the link between the people of their own country soon break? Many countries are more than willing to break unity with the Russian identity in order to return to an identity of their own. So we know that language is a huge part of identity, whether it be the native languages of former Soviet republics or the countless minority languages of post-colonial Africa. Having a distinct language draws attention to groups that might have otherwise been ignored and even gives groups a legitimacy to them. And conlangers have noticed this too. We now reach our final batch of conlangs. Klingon from Star Trek, Elvish from Lord of the Rings, Valyrian and Dothraki from Game of Thrones. All these languages were created to tell a story. They're spoken by fictional characters in a fictional universe. 
Now, since creating a language is quite the task, you might wonder what benefit this brings. Why not throw gibberish on the pages or on the screen? Well, I think the reason why so many storytellers make the effort to create a language goes back to our discussion of partif and identity. In a complex story, having multiple fully-fledged languages spoken by different groups can not only keep things straight in the minds of viewers, but it also goes a long way in world-building in terms of immersing us in the environment. As we said, we are all aware that language is a major part of both personal and group identities, so it kind of makes sense that giving a group in a fictional story a fictional language to speak helps us suspend our disbelief a lot more easily. That language is such a powerful tool because it mirrors the same thing we see in the real world, that being a linguistic link between several members of a group that clearly demonstrates its distinctness from others. Now, you might be wondering about the implications of constructed languages for real languages, and I think there are a few lessons to take away. I think the sheer lengths that languages like Ithquil and Lojban go to in order to make a quote-unquote logical language demonstrates how imperfect we are as human beings. There is no language on Earth that looks anything like these two, because all human languages reflect the inconsistency and irrationality inherent in the human form. At the very least, it'll make you appreciate people who are struggling to learn a language other than their native tongue. In terms of Esperanto, Volapük, and Conlangs created for storytelling, we've learned that language is a big part of identity. we learn that philosophical conceptions of the self can at least partly explain why many groups are so determined to keep their language. I think from a practical standpoint, this can help us look past the literal function of language and look at it from a more abstract standpoint, more than just being a barrier to overcome when moving to a new country or a subject that we need to pass for high school. A language is a representation of a group of people, a representation that any group couldn't do without. What do we stand to learn from Conlangs in general, then? Well, to me, philosophy is a tool for looking past the mechanical processes of the world. It's not only interested in asking how, but why, as we saw in this episode. Why does it need to improve, is what Conlangers ask. Language is all around us. Life pretty much can't function if multiple people cannot communicate. I think that studying the reasons behind the creation of Conlangs is important because of this fact. Let's think back to our episode on political music. We listen to music every single day, so it's important to understand how it can affect us and our opinions. We hear and use language far more often than we listen to music. Thinking about the ways various linguists and storytellers try and change the way we communicate is the most explicit way of studying the relationships between people and languages because it is a direct look into the mind of someone that the languages we already had were not good enough. Next time you go to study or speak a foreign language, take a moment to think about the culture, feelings, and sentiments tied to it. Or, even in your day-to-day life, in your native language, take the time to think about the significance of your words and the way you communicate with people. Thanks for listening to the Philosophy Cast. We hope you learned something new or gained a deeper understanding of the world around you. We'd love to know what you think, and you can tell us your thoughts at thephilosophycast at gmail.com or philosophycast.com. This has been Alexander Chotai, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Philosophy Cast.